In about the year 68 AD, when John the Apostle was the only remaining living apostle from among the number of the original 12, there's someone we know from our Bibles named Jude, who was the brother of James. And the two of them were brought up in the same family that our Lord Jesus was birthed into. And to use Jude's language, when he wrote an epistle to the churches, he was compelled to relay a certain exhortation. And it is given to us in the third verse of Jude's epistle. It reads, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And so it is in response to this burden that Jude expresses and that we feel ourselves as the Spirit of the Lord continues to guide His ministry into the needs of the times, that we bring a message to you under the title of The Promise of the Father and the Faith of the Saints. The Promise of the Father and the Faith of the Saints. I'm going to read that same third verse to you in a different translation. And perhaps this translation clarifies in your ears the reality that it appears that this servant of the Lord, who was, as I said, in the household that Jesus himself grew up within. I know he wasn't regenerate at that time, but no doubt after his regeneration, like Paul, he could see that he had been separated from his mother's womb. In other words, God had a plan for his life, and then when he was called by God's grace, he could call to remembrance the lessons and the dispositions that he observed in the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as within his family, with Mary and Joseph and his brothers and sisters. In other words, what I'm saying to you is that when Jude was wanting to encourage the saints in this era when most of the original twelve had passed away, and when he surveyed what was going on in the Christian churches, he says that he was going to share principles of the common faith. But it seems that when he went to write about the common faith, what was added to his initial desire was a Holy Spirit burden that placed upon his soul the need to exhort the brethren to contend, not just hear about this common faith, but to contend for it, to be earnest about living it themselves, to be earnest about holding on to the doctrines and the truths that had been given to the churches once for all. Because in this translation, the same verse reads the following way, Dear friends, although I had been eager to write to you about our common salvation, I now feel compelled 
instead to write to encourage you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Expressing, as I stated a moment ago, that along with his initial interest in edifying the churches, the Holy Spirit put a burden upon him, as he did with the Apostle Paul in his letters, as you remember in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and 2 Timothy chapter 3 and chapter 4, where the Spirit spoke expressly, where Paul saw the need to speak to Timothy and to say, I charge thee before God and the elect angels that you should preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. There's something of that burden that the Holy Spirit is sharing among the last writers of the New Testament canon. And Jude says that we are to earnestly contend for this common salvation, this faith that is entrusted to the saints. If one were to ask who compelled Jude, I suppose the obvious answer would just simply be God. And that is an adequate answer. And it isn't a different answer, but it's a different way of saying the same thing. And I think it gets to an essential point when I state it was the operation of the Spirit of the Lord within the person Jude. It was the fact that this servant of the Lord named Jude was still in step, still in communication. He was still a vessel who was able to be touched by the Spirit of God. He had a spiritual life. He was still living in the pneumatikos. He was living in the spiritual dimension that he had received as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who spoke to him. That's who compelled him to write to the saints. Now let's consider some of the key and stated issues that were behind this need for the saints to contend for the faith. What sorts of things were creeping into the churches? Indeed, that's the very language that Jude brings up in the fourth verse, he says, For there are certain men who have crept in. Some things had gradually worked their way into the churches and undetected by the majority of the believers in certain settings, the nature of the apostolic faith was dissipating. It was losing some of its spiritual dimensions. It was changing in its definition. In fact, he goes on to say that some are even in the process of denying the Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And it will serve us well to reflect through the course of this study on the promise of the Father and the faith of the saints to think about what denying the Lord God, what denying the Lord Jesus Christ could look like in a confessing Christian church. But when we get down to the 17th verse through the 23rd verse of Jude's epistle, he effectively reiterates the burden of the third verse, and then he begins to express something of the nature of the apostasy that he is needing to exhort the saints to overcome. They need to not go in the direction of the apostasy, but rather understand what the faith is and to commit themselves to earnestly contending for it. In the 17th verse, 
Jude writes, But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the same thing as saying, earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all delivered over to, for, over to you from the apostles. Remember these words, how that they told you that there should be mockers or scoffers in the last time who should walk after their own desires. The nature of the Christian church would begin to adopt a way of doing religion that would be more in keeping with the desires of its membership over against paying attention to the doctrines of the apostles. He says that there would be those who would separate themselves. There's one of the concerns. They would be sensual. That is to say, they would be soulish. It's effectively stating what was just said just a moment ago. In the 18th verse, they would be walking after their own ungodly interest and their own ungodly instincts, their desires, their feelings, their conclusions of how you ought to do church and how you might improve upon, as it were, the apostolic pattern. They're sensual, they're soulish. Christianity would become more of a soulish religion where the interest is what feels good to us as a church over against what is pleasing in God's eyes. And then he makes this remarkable statement, which will be something of the focus of this study. He says, having not the Spirit. Evidently, in plain language as we read here, that the experience of the Spirit was beginning to be lost within the Christian churches, even in Jude's day. And that this is the case, and that I'm not overstressing this point, is clear when we get to the 20th verse. He says, but you, beloved, in contrast to those who are beginning to separate themselves from the apostolic pattern, they're following soulish and personal ways and interest and perceptions of what it is to serve God. He says they're moving away from the true spirit-filled life. He says, but in contrast to that, you be careful to build yourself up on this most holy faith. And then he makes this remarkable statement. He says, praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, while it is the case that this study will support the conclusion I'm about to relay to you as to what praying in the Holy Spirit means here. This study is not going to be a full-fledged defense of the initial evidence of the experience of the baptism in the Holy Spirit, which is a unique experience for the regenerate believer as it's represented in the New Testament scriptures. And that initial evidence is speaking in another language supernaturally. And there are many benefits of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. We will touch upon some of these, but among them is this supernatural prayer language. And I want to state at the outset, there is actually a very robust and beautiful and deeply thought out and and very even Christianly philosophical reason why God would grant this blessing of being able to pray in another language. 
I'm not here to give you that study. But I will just state to you that one of the evidences of intelligent presence is language. And when the Holy Spirit comes and He dwells in you in a unique and special way, such that He is truly now located in the sanctuary of your being to empower you to live the Christian life and to bring this Christian life to others and to meet the needs that continue the ministry of what Jesus began to do and teach. To know that He is there is evidenced by Him speaking through you in a language that you yourself could not produce on your own. And therefore, you see that there is an intelligence that is with you. And this intelligence is the Holy Spirit. He is personal. He is real. He is genuinely there alongside and within you. But there again, if this is new information for certain ears, what I just stated to you is more a reminder for those who already understand these things. You would have to look to a different study, not this study, to give the full biblical defense of that view. But what I want to stress is that when Jude says over against or in contrast to those that are drifting away from the Spirit, he exhorts the believers to build themselves up on their most holy faith and to pray in the Holy Spirit. And that, in a New Testament context, that is clearly the idea of praying in that beautiful prayer language that comes through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, praying in tongues. Then he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ onto eternal life. And of some, have compassion, making a difference. And others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. That 22nd and 23rd verse is instructing those who will heed what Jude exhorts them to do. They will build themselves up in their most holy faith. They will not lose the spirit. They will not follow their own instincts and have a soulish orientation to the Christian faith. They will go back to their Bibles and study what the apostles taught them. They will not separate themselves from the apostolic pattern. And so those who make that commitment and are being built up and want to earnestly contend for the faith, he then instructs them to remember that you can have compassion on some and make a difference. But there may be occasions when compassion alone, as it were, is not making the point, is not getting through. And so he says, this issue of staying with the faith that was once for all delivered over to the saints is so important that you might need to use more strident measures in the language that he gives us. Save them with fear. Reach their hearts. Make it clear to them how serious these matters are. If you want God to keep you from falling and to present you holy before His glorious throne, you need to understand certain things about the Christian faith. And certainly right at the center of that is you cannot move away from the spiritual realm. You cannot move away from the baptism in the Holy Spirit, from speaking in tongues, from building yourself up in the most holy faith. A certain expositor who understands something of these things says, 
Though the book of Jude is in large measure a series of condemning statements, and that is the case if you read it, it is a series of statements speaking against certain traces of apostasy. I'll leave that to you to read on your own time, and you'll see how many verses are addressing that matter. But he goes on to say, though it is a series of condemning statements against members considered heretical, it is nonetheless written to people who are repeatedly addressed as beloved. You'll find that term used in verse 3, in verse 17, and in verse 20. Three times in a relatively short epistle. They are the ones who are urged to fight for the faith and who are exhorted as people of the Spirit to build yourself up on your most holy faith. What I'm stressing here is that these issues of serious apostasy is not something to toy around with. But the hope is, is that the Spirit of God can engage your heart as one, as, as one of His beloved and can reach you with the language of this exhortation. This idea of being people of the Spirit, that's exactly at the center of what Jude is speaking about. Some are not walking with the Spirit. They're not having the Spirit. Others are charged, you build yourself up, directly build yourself up in your most holy faith by praying in the Spirit. Think of some of the things that Jude says will be the benefit of being a person of the Spirit, a church being a church of the Spirit. Once again, he says in verse 20, you will be built up. What church would not want to be built up spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, physically even? Because God can bless your body when you're in the anointing. When you're in the presence of God, there's not only fullness of joy, but there's strength. There's understanding of His Word. There is a special power to live in the fruits of the Spirit as well as to operate in the gifts of the Spirit. And there is an anointing to witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Who wouldn't want to be built up, even numerically, ultimately, if that's the Lord's will? But it takes praying in the Spirit. And then he says, it'll keep you in the love of God. And this isn't the love of self. It isn't the love of Santa Claus. It isn't the love of some entity that is allowed within the church liturgy or the church practices that stands, a.k.a. also known as God, but it isn't actually God. You know how there are Lord's many and God's many, etc. In other words, there's lots of different religious practices that come under the rubric in the name of Christianity, but it isn't in line with God's pure word, and it can't honestly claim to be in keeping with the love of God. Now, that might not reach too many hearts in our generation. They might not appreciate the distinction that we're setting forth here. But I believe the Holy Spirit can make it clear to those who really have an ear for the shepherd's voice. And I'm encouraging those who can hear what the Spirit is saying is that I'm encouraging you to know that you can stay in the true, genuine love of God only to the extent that you stay in the Spirit. You stay built up. 
You stay in communion with God through praying in the Holy Spirit. You keep the spiritual dimension alive so that you're anointed and you're perceptive and you're discerning and you're sensitive to those things that claim to be in the love of God, but they're actually contrary to God. And so that you can truly be a light for the true love of God and help lead other people to understand the true purifying love of God. And then he says that you will look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ onto eternal life. In other words, I take that to mean looking for Jesus' return. Everyone can say that they're hoping that Jesus comes back. They're all looking for the day of the Lord, but they don't really understand what the day of the Lord will be to them. It will be a day of darkness and clouds and fear. What I'm talking about is where there can be a sincere, deep, free eagerness in your heart a genuine looking for the day of the Lord where there's none in heaven for you but the Lord Jesus and there's no one on earth that you desire beside the Lord. There's nothing beside the Lord. There may be other people in your life, but nothing is beside the Lord at that same level. And so what I'm saying is as you stay in the spirit and in the in, in the power of that, you are able to fulfill Romans 12, 1 and 2 and so many other passages. And God cleanses you from all your false affections and all your soulishness and on and on. And there's a clarity in your spirit looking for Jesus Christ to come and to end this age and to bring his bride to himself. That can only be kept by staying in the spiritual realm. They who walk away, separate themselves from the spiritual dimension, become either literal cessationist or practicing cessationist in that they don't really pray in the Spirit anymore. They don't operate in the gifts anymore. They don't pay attention to this spiritual dimension anymore. They might even wonder why we even were baptized in the Holy Spirit in the first place, things along those lines. They will drift away from sincerely looking for the Lord's return. They might even become a millennial ultimately. Let me read to you a quotation that emphasizes how essential this spiritual dimension is. How essential it is for us to be people of the Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is as essential today as on the day of Pentecost. I wonder if you all believe that this afternoon. The church has succeeded or failed in the direct proportion that this baptism has been received or rejected. Over church history, the church either has fulfilled its calling or come short of it to the extent that it has paid attention to this empowering. The great need of the church today is to recapture the message, receive the experience, and live a life of the Holy Spirit's fullness. This is a divine work of grace, instantaneously received, subsequent to regeneration. It cleanses the heart from sin. The evidence of being filled with the Spirit is an inward witness whereby God's Spirit witnesses or testifies to man's Spirit, and man's Spirit receives God's witness that the Holy Spirit has taken up His abode in the heart, and that is initially manifested Manifest by the Spirit of God speaking through you in another language supernaturally, saying effectively, I am here, I am personal, and I am 
with you and I can communicate through you. The issues, or excuse me, this issues in a holy life, producing the fruit of the Spirit. And then our author lists the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. I'm just emphasizing by quoting someone beyond myself, the essential need of what we might call Pentecost, the experience that is most quintessentially set forth before us in Acts chapter 2. But there are a number of orientations that are present in the Christian churches and have been present throughout church history that are opposed to what we have been advocating. So let's go all the way to the far left extreme and let's think through what it might look like to not have the Spirit, to move away and separate ourselves from the apostolic doctrine, to be very soulish and, and no longer praying in the Holy Spirit, no longer earnestly coveting the best gifts, no longer seeking to operate in the gifts, etc., if we go all the way to the left in that digression, we wind up in something called atheism. Atheism is a position where God is no longer in the picture. You were a theist, now we put the a privative in front of theist and we get atheist. It means I'm no longer interested in God. God is not in all my thoughts. God is not what I pay attention to. I pay attention to life. I pay attention to other things that I've drifted back into. I once separated myself from the golf course and the bowling alley and the worldly music, but now I'm drifting back and spending my time watching television, watching movies, playing cards, drinking alcohol, whatever. I'm drifting back. I'm separating myself and um, I'm less and less interested in God. Let me explain very clearly how the scriptures describe such a person. You can find it for yourself in the first verse of the 14th Psalm. The Bible, not me, says that that position is very foolish. That is a foolish move to drift away from God and to become an atheist. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now you might wonder, how is this relevant to our study? Well, I've already expressed it to you. Let's get a benchmark somewhere. And let's go all the way to the extreme. And let's think about the person who just walks away from God entirely. And the Bible says, that is a foolish move. You need to take that into your spirit. You need to hear that with your ears and your inner heart. To move away from God is a foolish move. But now I have a question for you. If someone is an Christus, is that same person an atheist? You may wonder what I mean by that. I'll give you a brief example. Suppose you are here today and you've decided that you no longer want to walk the Christian faith. Maybe you came up within some form of Jewish messiism, and you've decided that you can put aside the, Masson, the, the, the messianic dimension and just go back to the Jewish faith. And you really believe that God is one God. That's all there is. 
You're done with this triunity thing. And so you believe very firmly in God. And therefore you say to yourself, I'm not an atheist. But I'm asking you, biblically speaking, which is the only thing that matters, if you're an a-Christus, are you an atheist? And the answer is yes. In fact, the Apostle John tells us in his epistles that if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father either. Now here again, because of the constraints of time, we can't work out the logic of that at any great length. But that can certainly be worked out, and I have worked it out in other studies. But dear brothers and sisters, when God reveals that His Son is co-eternal, is of the same substance, that He is God, and therefore the God that you worshipped as a Jewish person is not simply an absolute monad, then you need to understand and stay with the revelation of who the true God is. More of that as we work through this study, at least to some extent. But what I'm saying is, once God reveals Himself as God the Father and God the Son, you don't have the right to say, well, I liked you when you were just God, that's all. And I'm going to stay with that. Because that's a progressive revelation of what was always true. And if you reject it, you no longer have the God that you thought you had back when you only had that much of a revelation. Well, again, I have to resist the temptation to work out that point with its logical force in order to fulfill the burden of this calling. I asked you, if you are an A-Christus, are you an atheist? And the answer is yes. I have another question for you. If you are an A-Spiritus, are you an atheist? This one you may need to think a little bit more deeply about. There are many in the confessing Christian faith that I would argue, practically speaking, they are on very wobbly ground here. In many respects, they are approaching that position of a spiritus to coin phrases. But you get my point. They don't believe they're atheists. They just don't have much to do with the Spirit. But is there any such thing as a God who is only God the Father and God the Son? You can leave God the Spirit out. There is no such God that is that God. As we will say throughout this study, I suppose a few times, there is no such thing as a non-triune God. There is one God, and this God is eternal, and as eternal, He has always been what He is now. And He is a triune God. There never was a non-triune God. There is no such thing as a non-triune God. There is a God. And that God is triune. And there's no such thing as a non-triune God. The reality of God is not this. God exists, and that's God. And then He sort of parses Himself out as... God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That is not true. There are not four entities, as it were, or four thoughts you hold in your mind, one of which is God, sort of the source of all things. And then we think about, well, we know that God comes as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You can sort of get to God by going through God the Father, or maybe get to God by going through God the Father and God the Son, but you still get to God, and if I get to God, I'm not an atheist. 
The revelation has been given in its completeness by God's own doing. The revelation of God. He is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He gives us no right to reduce Him down to one or two. That's not the revelation. That's your soulish revelation. That's not the Apostles' doctrine. And so if you are an Achristius, the Scriptures themselves say you don't have the Father either, which is to say you move away from Jesus and say, well, I don't need Christ that much. I'll take a couple things from Him, but I don't really need His um, substitutionary penal death. I don't want that. I don't need that. I don't even believe that we really need blood to be shed in order to be saved. We just need a good example. We need the governmental theory of Grotius in order to get redeemed. So you can say, well, I used to believe these things about Jesus, but you now are separating yourself from Christ. You're following a soulish orientation to Christ. You are having not Christ, you are an Achristius, and as such, you're an atheist. But if you're an Aspiritus, and you're separating yourselves from the things of the Spirit, and you're saying, well, I'll take a couple of general things from the Spirit, like regeneration and breath and life itself, but I don't need the gifts of the Spirit, and I don't need to believe for special anointings, and I certainly don't need tongues. Or if I'm going to have them at all, I certainly don't want to pray out loud with tongues under any circumstances. That is drifting from the faith that was once for all delivered over to the saints. That is becoming a spiritus. And you may not be an atheist all the way to the left yet, but anyone who is making that drift is absolutely moving in the direction of, as Jude says, denying the Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, I'm not denying the Father or the Lord Jesus Christ when I deny the Spirit. I think you better ask the Father if you are. Because there's no such thing as denying the Spirit and not denying the Father. They aren't three gods. If you ask the Father, He wouldn't say, well, just a minute, I have a special liking for the Spirit. Hey, Spirit over there, is it okay with you if Someone walks away from you and stays close to me. I don't want to be unjust or disrespectful to you. Would that be okay? That's not the way that that analysis would go. It is denying Him. To deny the Spirit is to deny the Father. To deny the Son is to deny the Father. To deny the Father and just take the Son and the Spirit is to deny the Son and the Spirit. That's the nature of the God that created the universe. That's the nature of the God who will be with us for eternity. That's the nature of the God who will save your soul. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what we find is that they who move in these dimensions of atheism, either a patriism, if you want to use that phrase, you know, they sort of deny the Father, God the Father, or a Christiusism or a Spiritusism. I understand I'm coining words, but I think you get the point. We find out that it's not just their theology that is weakened. It's their Christian life. It's their morality. It's their ability to understand the ways of God and to grow and to become full-rounded Christian people. Even in Psalm 14 that we read a moment ago that says, this is a foolish move. You all agree with me that it's a foolish move to say there is no God. 
I'm trying to make the point to ourselves and to God's people in general, but let's stay with ourselves. I'm trying to make the point, I think you would agree with this, it's a foolish thing to say there is no Christ, to move away from Jesus, like, say, an Orthodox Jew might. You understand what I'm saying? I believe in God. I believe in one God. I believe in living a moral life as you claim that should look like. You're just sort of a Christius, that's all. But you're still a believer in God. The Bible says that's foolish. That's foolish because there's no other name given among men whereby you can be saved except the name of Jesus. That's a very foolish move. It's not going to end well with you. It is also foolish to become a spiritus, though I've watched many people do it. It's a very foolish move to say there is no God. There really is not that big of a deal of a thing about the Spirit. Praying in tongues is not that big of a deal. Who told you that? An anti-Christ? Yes. An anti-spiritist spirit told you that. Because he doesn't want you in fellowship with God, is why he told you that. Because what will happen is, as that verse finishes in verse 1, we read, they are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. And you could read the remainder of the 14th Psalm and many other Psalms, the 53rd Psalm, many other Psalms you can read such language. What it's telling you is if you move away from God, your life suffers. Your character suffers. Your morality suffers. You drift away from light and truth. You drift away from God's people. You separate yourself. You become soulish. Originally, it still has a lot of Christian trappings to it, but you're starting to become a soulish person in how you do Christian religion. You're worried about my feelings and don't hurt my feelings and don't step on my toes and those sorts of things. You're becoming soulish as opposed to spiritual. By moving away from the spirit, corruption begins to work in. I mean, the reason why humanity is lost and they don't do any good thing is because they're atheists. Because they moved away from God. I trust you see what I'm saying. And Almighty God in His redemptive plan has brought us into fellowship with the full God, as it were. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's the work of redemption. That's the three major epiphanies of redemptive history. I won't run through that in this study, but what I'm saying is, at Acts chapter 2, the full revelation of God was granted to the believing community. And if you start moving away from the Spirit, you're starting to run the film backwards. And you're going to wind up back in your corruptions and um, in your abominations. And you're not going to be doing the things that God wants you to do. You will not be doing the things that are well-pleasing in His sight. The Bible tells us that the wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. That is Psalm 10, verse 4. We're going to look at some of the subsequent verses, but I want to ask you again. Everyone here who hears me quote that verse, you don't have to say amen vocally, but you know in your heart that on any given day you would say amen to that phrase. You recognize the language, the wicked, the wicked, because of pride in their own face, in their standing, in their countenance. It's pride in their face. It's pride because I'm here and I have an opinion. They won't seek after God. God isn't in all their thoughts. 
We recognize that language and we think, yep, that sure applies to those unbelievers out there. What if the Spirit is not in all your thoughts? What if you don't seek after the Spirit? Is that anywhere remotely related to this? Well, of course it is, because there's no such thing as a non-triune God. What if you don't seek after Christ? What if Christ is not in all your thoughts, but you have God, the great monad, God, Plotinus is God for all practical purposes in your head. You're going to find that it doesn't change your life. You have to seek after God. And I'm not saying you, have, I'm not saying you should wake up on Monday and seek after God the Father. Wake up on Tuesday and seek after God the Son. Wake up on Wednesday and seek after God the Spirit. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying to seek after God is to seek after the fullness of the redemptive blessings that have been embedded within the covenant. And those do have certain emphases with the various persons of the one God. God sent His Son. The Son shed His blood. And the Spirit comes to indwell and empower the believer. That or those are things that we seek to understand and live within. Well, I intended to go through the other verses, verses 5 through 7 of Psalm 10, maybe I will just briefly run through some of the consequences of not having God in your thoughts. Verse 5 says that such a person brings grief or exhaustion to others. It says his ways are always grievous. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this, but my point is one might pick up one's Bible our cessationist brethren or others who are, have moved away from the Spirit-filled life, they're not building themselves up in the most holy faith. They're not praying in the Spirit, praying in tongues and living in that realm and seeking the Spirit in that dimension, wanting to be used of the Lord. In other words, what I'm saying is such people who have all those characteristics might pick up their Bible, read Psalm 10, verse 4, and think about, yep, there are wicked people out there that don't seek after God and God's not in their thoughts, and as a consequence, yes, their character begins to exhaust other people the way they're argumentative and resistant, and they don't change, and so on. As it says, His ways are always grievous, but I'm encouraging you to think about this applies at least in measure. At least in measure. In the lives of those who do not seek after God the Spirit, in the lives of those who don't have the spiritual dimension as it's described in the book of Acts and in the Corinthian epistles and throughout the New Testament, and as Jude himself speaks of it, they don't have that in their mind. They're not seeking those things. They may not feel like they're exhausting, but they're exhausting to God and they're exhausting to people who are trying to live the Spirit-filled life. They drag along. They don't overcome. They can't... They can't believe God in trials and so on and so forth because they're not operating in the spirit of faith, the spirit that builds up your faith. If you think I'm not making any sense, then all you need to do is ask yourself, suppose you ceased seeking after Jesus and Jesus wasn't 
in, was not in all your thoughts and you just wanted to emphasize the Father because you felt that this would be productive to greater unity with the broad family of God. Enough of these divisions, all these people who have separated themselves. Let's bring the family of God back together. Let's love one another. Let's stand up for morality in God because wickedness is so all around us. We need the help of everybody who will join. Suppose you were to do that. Well, you would be exhausting and grievous to those who believe we need to stay with Jesus. They may not like his blood. They may not like the exclusivity of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come unto the Father but by me. They may not like that, but we need to stay with it. And if you're like, well, I'm not so sure. Well, well, brother, that's your opinion. I used to believe that too, but I just believe we just need to believe in God. That's enough. You're exhausting people who are actually contending for the faith. And the same thing holds true when you become a spiritus. Oh, let's not talk about tongues. Let's not talk about healing, casting out demons and gifts of the spirit. That's just so problematic. Let's just acknowledge that obviously if we're regenerate, we received a ministry of the spirit. Do you not agree with that, Brother William? Brother William says, I agree with that. Okay, so let's just settle down there. Well, I'll say you're, you're exhausting me. Because I'm seeking to make the point that we are not supposed to move away from the Spirit. That was the faith that was once for all delivered over to the saints. Another thing is such a person ceases to pay attention to God's warnings. It says in verse 5, Thy judgments are far above, out of his sight. It would be interesting to just emphasize these various points in a study all on its own. But the demonstration of a lack of concern for God's warnings... You know, who cares any longer about the idea that if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you don't have any salvation in this life or the next? Like, people just don't even care. They say all kinds of things about the Spirit. Do you follow what I'm saying? I could give you many examples standing here of well-known ministers who say the craziest things about the Spirit of God. The craziest things. I don't know if they crossed the line or not, but their judgments, the judgment about mistreating the Spirit of God is not in the thoughts of those who are a spiritus. They don't worry about it. I've got Christ. I've got the Father. Okay, maybe you're big on the Spirit, but I'm not. They don't care. I care. He pays no heed to those who admonish him. As for all his enemies, he puffeth at them. He is self-confident and fears no consequences. Verse 6, he has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. For I shall never be in adversity. I might be a spiritus. I may not pray in the spirit. I may not pray in tongues. I may not even really believe it anymore or whatever. But it doesn't matter that I won't be building myself up in my most holy faith. It doesn't matter that I will be compromising keeping myself in the true love of God. It doesn't matter that I'm going to really lose the standing to say I'm really looking for the mercy and the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not worried about any of those things. I'm self-confident. I'm not going to be moved. It's all going to work out fine. Okay, I can tell you where I stand. I stand with Jude. If I started feeling myself separating myself from the Spirit of the Lord moving into a soulish religion, having not the Spirit, I'd be like, oh brother, oh boy, this is not good. And his tongue is reckless. Verse 7, his mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. Yeah, I'm not overemphasizing these things. I've watched ministers and other people who are either, as I say, positionally cessationist or Practically, that's how they practice. They're cessationists. And um, 
they're reckless with their tongues. I guess we sort of already said something about that. I'll tell you one way of not sinning with your tongue. I'm going to posit first that you genuinely have the baptism in the Holy Spirit and you have that given attending blessing that comes with that of being able to speak, worship, pray in a supernatural language. When you do use your tongue and pray in the Spirit, that's a good use of your tongue. You're not being reckless when you do that. You know, if the Bible says you're going to have to give an account for every word you speak, I might just feel like speaking in tongues for the rest of my life. Because I know at least I won't be doing anything wrong. Let's go to another category. We have just dealt with the atheist. That's one sort of orientation to what's happening in the religion of Jude's time. They're moving away from the Spirit, and I'm arguing they're becoming atheists. They're drifting in that direction. A spiritus. They're becoming atheists. But what about the pagans? And I would add here the modern unregenerates that say there are many gods. I don't know if you remember this or not, but in Genesis 17, in a real sense, that's at the beginning of the redemptive plan as it relates to, let's say, the formulation of the Old Covenant and now we're in the New Covenant, you know, the call of Abraham after the flood and after the Tower of Babel, you follow what I mean? And then this covenant being given to Abraham, well, he was called out of paganism. He was called out of polytheism. So I'm wanting you to think about the other extreme now. On one side, there are those that just move away from the idea of God. On the other side, there are those that add all kinds of categories that keep religion going, but they are not giving the one true God the glory, giving attention and devotion and prayer and faith and discipleship to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, our one triune God. They have a lot of other things that are coming into their affections and their attention. And I'm trying to say that once upon a time, before this whole project of regenerating humanity that we are now partakers of, right? Where children of Abraham by faith, we enter into this monotheism that this one God who is triune, you follow what I'm saying? Well, once upon a time, there was confusion about who the real God is, and they were polytheists. In fact, Joshua speaks to this issue in Joshua 24, he says, Unto the people, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the Euphrates in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. So what we're looking at here, just to keep your attention, is this is, this is where we were saved, this is what we were saved out of, polytheism. Lots of things filling the space that only God should have. But I brought that to your attention to show you something else about the nation of Israel. That some 820 years after Joshua, around 625 BC, we read these words from Jeremiah about where Israel is at now. Now remember, Abraham was called out of polytheism. 
was given a revelation of who the true God is. Hear, O Israel, thy God is one God. There is none beside me. And they were to be devoted just to this one God. Do you understand? Let's discover how their backsliding looked. 820 years after what Joshua relates to us. In Jeremiah 11, verse 9, And the Lord said unto me, A conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words. And they went after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. In fact, in the 13th verse, we are told that according to the number of thy cities were thy gods. Well, this is obviously on the other extreme, isn't it? If true center in the narrow way is worshiping the one true triune God, far to the left are any form of atheism, a patronism, a Christicism, a spiritism, any of those is a move to atheism. Here on the far right is the situation where someone is backsliding into a situation where you stay religious, you believe in things to help you in your life, but they're in addition to the one true God. Maybe it's medicine and medication. Maybe it's psychologists and counseling. Maybe it's music and entertainment. You can fill in the blank with what you've seen in other people or you have had to overcome in your own life. For some people, it's even unclean images or conspiracy theories or whatever it is. Things that have become sources of life-giving relief and ministry to your soul rather than seeking that apostolic doctrine in communion in the Holy Spirit, finding life through just the simplicity of the Christian faith. That's not enough any longer. You separate yourself from that. You become soulish in how you do life. Some people move into adultery. That's one form of this. And there are various adulterous, adulterous forms of religious practice. But they, they, we have God's many. There are Churches on every corner, so to speak, to use a way of expressing this. He says, according to the number of thy cities are the number of thy gods. That's not the way it is to be with those who are holding on to the faith that was once for all delivered over to the saints. The faith that was once for all delivered over to the saints is the faith of the true God who is triune. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If you move away from either of any of those persons to express myself in the only language I have available. If you move away from the Spirit, the Son, or the Father, you are moving away from the faith that was once for all delivered over to the saints. If you move away from the simplicity of worshiping that one God into additional things, various idolatrous activities that take the place of the simplicity of the apostolic faith, you are backsliding into polytheism with the multiplication of your idols. The Bible says to us, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that that is what we were called out of. We, this is Thessalonians, but we were to turn from idols to God, or we are to turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's 
That's what the Christian faith is all about. It says in, as I said, 1 Corinthians 8 verse 4, As concerning therefore the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto what? Unto idols. The pagans have all these gods. You know, like in Acts 16, you know, the Areopagus, just lined with idols and images to various gods, one after another. He says, but we know that the idol is nothing. To us, there is none other but one God. Though there are that are called gods, whether in heaven or, or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many. But verse 6 says, but to us, is this still true of you, believer? To us, there is one God. That is the New Testament affirmation of the truth of triunity. That there are not three gods, there is one God. That's right in the New Testament. It doesn't say there's three gods. We're not arguing that there are three gods. We're not presenting some notion that you think that, well, God the Holy Spirit is sort of a third thing, and we're wondering how we have to balance these three things out. No, I'm saying, are you in fellowship with the one God? He says to us, there is one God. And then he says... The Father, from whom are all things, and we in Him, and there's one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. That already is showing that this oneness is not an absolute monadic oneness. Amen? When he speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ being co-equal with the Father. So I want to say to you that somewhere between no God and all sorts of gods lies the faith that was once for all delivered over to the churches. Koines soterios, the common salvation. I hope that is clear enough in your minds that obviously the Christian faith lies between the extremes of no God and some number, whatever that number might be, we don't know even how to work with the numbers. Polytheism, how many is that? We don't know. I want to give you a formulation that captures the truth that I'm saying to you. That godly men in the apostolic era and in the post-apostolic era who sought to contend earnestly for the faith recognized that somewhere between the two extremes of no God, and some unknown number of gods lies the truth that was once for all delivered over to the saints. And what you're going to discover, dear brothers and sisters, is that the answer to where the Christian faith is, is not just simply, we believe in an absolute monad. We believe in just God. That's it. We believe in God. That actually is not landing on what the Christian faith teaches. In other words, I don't want to be an atheist. I don't want to say there is no God at all. But I certainly don't want to be a polytheist and come up with numbers that don't make any sense. So I'm going to say that God's an absolute monad. And I'm going to be comfortable with that. I believe in God. I take Jesus too. Uh, he can be pretty much up there, sort of in your thinking. But I really just want to stay with God. And as long as I stay with God, I'm a good Christian. That is not what godly men have come to understand the Christian faith to be. Let me give you one formulation. It is known as the Athanasian Creed, although 
it was not written by Athanasius, as is evidenced by the fact that its origin was in Latin, and he wrote in Greek, and there are other reasons why scholars don't believe, and nor do I, that Athanasius literally penned these lines. His life and teachings influenced these thoughts. But be that as it may, this is a 5th century, so we're in the 400 AD era, and this is just a portion of the Athanasian Creed that tells us what we should be thinking as believers in the common salvation of what is the faith that was once for all delivered over to the saints. And hear with me whether or not you can be a Christus or a Spiritus and still be in the Christian faith. Can you move away from the Spirit and still be in the Christian faith is my question. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the common faith. Some translations have Catholic, but it doesn't mean Roman Catholic. It means common. Anyone who does not keep it whole entirely and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Does anybody listen to language like that anymore? Is anyone sober enough in the Christian churches any longer to hear such things and take it meaningfully and seriously? Now, this is the common faith. That we worship one God in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another distinct person, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable or unlimited. The Son is immeasurable or unlimited. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable or unlimited. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable Beings, there is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is Almighty, the Son is Almighty, the Holy Spirit is Almighty, yet there are not three Almighty beings. There is but one Almighty being. Thus, the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Yet, there are not three gods. There is but one God. As I say, there is no such thing as a non-triune God. Stated it differently, God is. I am that I am, he said. I could say there is a God, but I will say instead, God is. And the God that is, is triune. He is not non-triune. He is triune. He is one God, but He is triune. It is a mystery to your mind, but that is the revelation. 
There is no such thing as God the Father and God the Son with a little Holy Spirit in a sidecar somewhere. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God. The language of the Bible is replete with this. I will not be giving you a full-fledged treatment of the doctrine of triunity, but take a well-known passage that is as powerful as any other. It is the first verse of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. Now we know from the 14th verse that that Word is the Lord Jesus Christ because the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. The glory as the only begotten Son of the Father. Amen? So in the beginning, what is it told? What are we told? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. You can't be with God if you are absolutely all there is to God. Follow me? You can't be with something. It's not saying in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with itself or Himself. It is using the language of the Old Testament revelation which revealed God in the simplicity of His oneness prior to a full-fledged revelation of His triuneness. And it is saying the God that you Jews know about, the God that has been in the revelation history story, the Logos was with this God who we now know by association. We, we term this person by his own revelation as God the Father. Jesus said, when you pray, say, our Father. He is God the Father because he has a son eternally. That's the revelation of the Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So, in the beginning, we're already learning. It's just not so simple to say, in the beginning, God created, and it's an absolute monad. Do you understand what I'm saying? Here's a further revelation. In the beginning was the Word. And by the way, all the way from the beginning, at all times, the Word was with the one that you know as God. So, there's something about the Godhead that has a withness to it. But then John says, and the Word was God. Oh, so we don't have two gods now. We have one God who is with God. The same was in the beginning with God. All I'm showing you is that's just one verse that supports that portion of the Athanasian Creed that I read to you. There is a mystery to it. But it is a beautiful and awesome mystery. Athanasius writes, If the Word is not with the Father from everlasting, the triad is not everlasting. The triuneness of God is not everlasting. But a monad was first. And afterwards, by addition, it became a triad. But he goes on to say, well, what sort of religion is that? that changes over time. That's not the true religion. What it is showing us is this. God is not an absolute monad. Now, there have been heresies on the doctrine of God. Once again, in this study, we won't be digging into the history of the heresies. I just want to point out to you a couple of them very briefly to make a point that one can be falsely associated with the revelation of the Bible as it's given to us on the doctrine of God. So, for example, Arianism, named after the Alexandrian prelate Arius, whose dates are 256 to 336, Arianism denies that the Son 
is homoousios, of the same substance as, as the Father. And they reduce the Son to the rank of a creature, but argue that He was the first of the creative work of God, and He pre-exists before the world, those sorts of things. So they ratchet Him up as high as they're willing, but they deny that He is of the same substance as the Father. What do you wind up with? In Arianism and all heresies like Arianism, what they're arguing, they're not atheists. Arians are not atheists. They are absolute monadists. Do you understand what I'm saying? They don't want to pay attention to Christ and they don't want to pay attention to the Spirit. They just want to pay attention to God. That's a heresy. To just say, I only want to pay attention to God and not pay attention to Christ or the Spirit is heresy. And I don't know if you can stomach it, but if you start drifting away from the Spirit and say, I don't want to pay attention to the Spirit, I just want to pay attention to God the Father and God the Son. They're the real gods to me. They're the ones that you really have to be sensitive to and pay attention to. Make sure you have your doctrine right. Anything that's revealed about them, you better get it straight and stay in it. That's what you really need. But as it relates to the Spirit, we can play around with Him and clip Him out and ignore Him at will, especially if it's embarrassing. That's a form of heresy. As one historian puts it, the Arians called Christ good, but would not in the full sense call Him God. Oh, I like the Holy Spirit. He's good. I'm glad he regenerated me. I believe he anoints me. I can preach like you, Brother William. I don't have the baptism. I don't speak in tongues. I can put together a sermon. The Holy Spirit's good. I agree he's good. He's just not quite up there at the God level where I really pay attention to all the revelation about him. And I don't believe that it has an expiration date on it. Is there an, is there an expiration date on the work of the Father? Is there an expiration date on the work of the Son? And yet somehow we can put an expiration date on the giving of the Spirit and what that looks like in the Christian faith. Another heretic in the ancient church went by the name of Sibelius. He was a Libyan and his influence became known as Sibelianism. It was rife again in the late third century and um, his ideas can loosely be known or characterized as modalistic monarchianism. Sibelius declared that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are but three names of the same monad. So his argument against the Arians, the Arians say, the Son is not God. The Spirit is not God. Stop giving them too much attention. There's just God. God is one. That's it. Oneness Pentecostals do this sort of thing. The Sabellians said, no, 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 Arius, you jumped a little too quick. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But we agree with you, Arians, there is just one monad. There is just one God. There is no triune godness or whatever. These are modes of the monarchy, namely God, manifesting himself. The monarch, the chief monarch, God. In the Old Testament, roughly speaking, he manifests himself as the Father. And then the same God in New Testament times, the Gospel era, He manifests Himself, that is to say, in Jesus' ministry, He manifests Himself as the Son. And now in the church age, again, roughly speaking, He manifests Himself as the Spirit. 
The same God under different titles, different modes, different ministries. One God, that's it. Just one God, no triunity. But Father, Son, and Spirit are all God. It's just that when He was in the mode of God the Father, there was no God the Son, and there was no God the Spirit. When He was in the mode of God the Son, there was no God the Father, and there was no God the Spirit. You follow what I'm saying? Because those are just names. Those are just modes. It's the same one God, and there is no three other or two other attending modes or persons at the same time. You follow what I'm saying? So what I'm pointing out is that these are reductionist heretical views on one extreme or the other that reduce the triunity of God, take attention away from the triune nature of God and reduce it closer and closer to just one. Well, how much of that reduction do you have to do before you start grieving God? Is it okay to just reduce God, practically speaking, to two, as it were? To allow the Holy Spirit a little bit of work over here in life, give regeneration. You know, He probably was somehow re involved in the creation. He hovered over the face of the unformed in the beginning. Nest stuff. <laughs> you know, the face of the earth was formless and void and so on. And doctors hovered over the face of the deep. And But we sort of reduce our practice and our attention to two. Gregory Nazianzen disagrees with that and echoes the sympathy of the Athanasian Creed when he says, let nobody perish, but let us in one spirit and in one soul strive for the faith of the gospel, guarding the good pledge which we, re which we receive from the fathers. You know, the the ministry that went before us, worshiping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, knowing them in one another, the Father and the Son, the Son and the Spirit. I read these quotes relatively quickly, but I want you to hear the contrast. The godly men of the faith have said, don't perish. Strive to hold for the faith of the gospel, as Jude says. And don't drift away from the Spirit. Worship the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because, dear brothers and sisters, one way by which to underscore how genuinely necessary it is for us to pay attention to the ministry of the Spirit is the fact that it is given and revealed in the language of the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father. I want to develop that thought as we work toward a close this afternoon. I want to develop the reality that especially from the dawn of the ministry of John Baptist all the way to the outpouring at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the idea that there is a promise, a powerful, beautiful promise from the Father that is coming when the new covenant is established, a promise from the Father that is at the center of that is going to come to God's people, is going to come to the new covenant community. There is great emphasis on this idea of a promise from the Father that is becoming aware to God's people. It is being granted attention and being spoken on about with specificity from especially John Baptist's ministry, all the way to Acts chapter 2. Let me tell you that story. 
and you will write down some of these verses as you please. I won't wait for you to turn to them. But even when we go to the pre-John era, let's start with setting up the backdrop before John Baptist, okay? I'm arguing that at the dawn of John Baptist's ministry, the idea of a promise from the Father that is coming, and you're going to see that that promise is specifically the outpouring of the Spirit of God and the dimensions in the Spirit that attend that outpouring, including speaking in another language supernaturally, or as the phrase goes, speaking in tongues. That was a promise of the Father. But even before John, while there is much more to this story that one could give, I'm going to give you some samplings. All of this from this point to the end of the message is just going to be samplings. But I trust it will make the case. So, for example, all the way back in Moses' day, there was a certain understudy of Moses named Joshua. He noticed a couple of God's uh, covenant people doing a little prophesying in the camp, and he thought this was out of order and shouldn't be the case. And Moses was very much contrary to that viewpoint. He said to Joshua, do you envy for my sake? Do you think I'm the one who should have all the anointing? Do you think that I feel as though the Holy Spirit should simply be granted to just special instruments and not something that everyone can experience. He says, would to God that all the Lord's people had the anointing. All the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord's Spirit was upon them all. Now, what do people do with that? I can't digress at every point, but do they argue that nobody had the Spirit in any sense within the camps of Israel? But there was a sense in which they didn't have it in the way that Moses had it, is the point. And Moses was saying, I wish they had more than just biological life, which comes by the Spirit. I wish they had more than just regeneration that comes by the Spirit. I wish they had this special anointing and virtual infilling that I experienced where I relate to God in the communion of the Holy Spirit face to face. And He shows me things and I understand things and I'm encouraged and strengthened to walk more faithfully with him. That's really what he's saying. I wish they all had the Spirit so they would be more faithful to God. And then leaping forward as if in answer to that burden on Moses' heart, we have in Joel chapter 2 the promise that is also quoted by Peter at that eventful moment we're speaking of on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. But in Joel chapter 2 and verse 28, we read, It will come. It is going to come. It's going to come that I will pour my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And on the servants and the handmaidens will I pour out my spirit. Now this is pre-John. Pre-John the Baptist. This is not something that has happened yet. It's going to come to pass afterward. That even though the covenant community obviously has some experience of the spirit... There's a dimension of the Spirit that they don't yet have. And Joel says, it's going to come. Then when Ezekiel is speaking in his own language about the new covenant that you know so well from Jeremiah 31, 31 and context, 
in Ezekiel's language in the 36th chapter. Listen to this promise and pay attention to the language. A new heart will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you an heart of flesh. Are you with me so far? You have a new heart. That's regeneration. That new heart is not just an actual biological organ. It is speaking of a spiritual change because God regenerates your spirit. You get a new spirit. All things are passed away. All things are new. You get a new spirit. You're regenerated with a new heart and a new spirit. And that stony, dead heart is taken out of you. But then in verse 27, we have a very important copulative. It says, and, and I will put my spirit within you. That's something beyond you receiving a new heart and you personally having your own personal spirit regenerated and brought into communion with God. I grant that Peter was saved before he received the baptism in the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And he had a new spirit and a new relationship with God. Jesus himself said that he did when he made his confession of faith in Jesus. He said that the Father has blessed you with that understanding. He was a regenerate man. But the Bible says, and I will put my spirit within you and you will be caused, not forced, but you will be empowered to do what God's people have never done well. Walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. Now I'm going to take a brief leap over into the New Testament just to show you how these things coordinate and hopefully emphasize the beauty and the need of this promise of the spirit, what I'm calling the promise of the father. This language that articulates how absolutely beautiful and important and central this feature of New Covenant Christianity is. It is a promise of the Father, the giving of the Spirit, and what that should mean in the Christian's life. So I'm going to go from Ezekiel chapter 36 to, to Romans chapter 8 and express to you in the language of Paul the fulfillment of what Ezekiel speaks of in Ezekiel 36, this idea that the regenerate person through the baptism in the Holy Spirit will not only have a new heart and a new spirit, that's regeneration, but then you ought to receive the immersion of the Holy Spirit within your soul so that you become a sanctuary of the living God in a special, personal, directly faith-enacted way where you believe, you ask for that Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit comes into you, and you can now pray in that supernatural language. Why? Because He is there, and He manifests Himself. And the New Testament, that was a Spirit-filled church situation, uses language like this. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. This is not a form of walking after the Spirit that is absent. The sort of thing that Jude speaks about in Jude 20, where you build up yourself in your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
Do you understand what I'm advocating? I'm saying this walking in the Spirit in New Testament psychology and understanding and what Paul is referring to here. This is the life of someone who has been baptized in the Holy Spirit and is keeping up his life in the Spirit by praying in the Spirit and seeking the dimensions of the Spirit. Not for entertainment, not for frivolous purposes. We're not advocating that, but we are advocating... Um, appreciating the promise of the Father and living the Spirit-filled life. And he says, if you will walk in that, then those experiences of condemnation that you sense, either straightforwardly doctrinally, because you just realize, I'm not walking the Christian faith, you know what I'm saying? And you're convicted because you're in a lot of sin. Or even just the condemnation that comes in your emotions and so on. If you walk in the Spirit, brothers and sisters, that is a very strong weapon against the condemning uh, experience that can sometimes be associated with the Christian walk. He says, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. This is pointing back to the Old Testament, essentially. This is pointing back to the problem that is addressed by Ezekiel and other prophets, that God's people don't keep the statutes, they don't keep the law. Why? Not because the law isn't just holy and good. It's not it's too strident that the law is too hard. It's because the flesh isn't able in its own strength to keep the law, keep the word of God, live an upright life. That's why Moses said, I wish everybody had the spirit of the Lord so they would live a better life. And Romans 8 says, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin and took a care of the issue of sin in the flesh. He condemns sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. I'm just trying to show you, dear brothers and sisters, as we make this case, that that Old Testament prophecy that comes before John, that speaks of the coming of the Spirit, that's all about your and my ability to live this Christian life well, for God to have a glorious, vibrant, spirit-filled, living church to do the Word of God. But then John the Baptist comes on the scene, and we'll pick up the pace a little bit here. John Baptist says, I indeed baptized you with water unto repentance, but there's someone who's coming after me who is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He hasn't done it yet. John Baptist is speaking about something in the future. He's saying he is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. That has not occurred yet, but it's being promised. It's already being set up. It's already being pointed to. And in John chapter 1, in verse 33, John says, I know who this one is that is going to fulfill what I spoke about in Matthew 3 and verse 11, because I was told that whoever comes and is baptized by me and I see the Spirit descending upon him at his baptism, that's the same one who is going to be, that's the same one who is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's what John 1 in verse 33 says. 
And so John saw the Spirit descending upon Jesus when Jesus was water baptized. And John says himself, I know that's the one who's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. He's going to do something more than what I have done. A baptism unto repentance and regeneration. He's going to do something more. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. So now we come to Jesus. But before I start giving you some of the language of Jesus about the promise of the Father, all of which he puts in the future tense, that it is going to come over and over again in this ministry, he points to the baptism in the Holy Spirit, that it's going to come. But before I get to that language, I just want to give you a few statements about Jesus' life itself and manifest how sensitive the Holy Spirit is to his entire ministry and person. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 35, Mary is told, you are going to conceive supernaturally. You are going to bring forth the eternal Logos. He's going to take on flesh as it were in your womb. Do you understand that? And Gabriel said, this is how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon thee. What do the Espiritus do with such language? How can you neglect the Holy Spirit when if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't even have the Christ incarnated? According to the Word of God, it says the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, Mary, and He's going to overshadow you. And so that thing that is born of you is going to be the Holy Child, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 that Mary was found with child of the Holy Spirit. We're told that in Luke chapter 3, in verse 21 and 22, we're told that when all the people had been baptized, it came to pass that Jesus being baptized and praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice from heaven said, Thou art my beloved Son, and thee I am well pleased. Do you understand at all what is going on there? What I mean by that is, here again, a broader teaching on this issue would take a little bit more time than I can give it. But most of you will be aware of the fact that Jesus himself didn't personally have to be water baptized. He said to, John said to him, I have need of baptism from you. But Jesus said, suffer it to be so, to fulfill all righteousness. So there's a very real sense in which Jesus was water baptized to set up a pattern for the believer, since he is showing this is what your master has done, like washing feet, etc., etc., and um, I'm identifying with your life and with the church of Jesus Christ, as it were. And so he's water baptized, not because he needed to be washed from sin, not that sort of identity with our sinful life, but identity with the Christian faith so that somebody couldn't say, I'm a Christian, I don't need to be water baptized because Jesus didn't get water baptized. You see what I'm saying? And likewise... The Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus in obviously a special way. Obviously a special, unique way. And that too was Jesus setting forth a pattern for the believer. And then we read in Luke chapter 4 and verse 1, 
following Jesus' water baptism and the Holy Spirit coming upon him. By the way, it came upon him and it rested on him. And we're told, and Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. I hope you understand with me that that language expresses the idea that a special anointing came upon the Lord Jesus at his water baptism. Obviously, he was a saved man, if you want to use that sort of terminology. In other words, Jesus himself is in right relationship with God as a pattern for us to understand. He's already in a right relationship with the Father, but now he receives a special anointing. Although he's already in a right relationship with the Father, do you not see with me at his water baptism in John, he receives a special anointing impartation of the Spirit of God such that we can be told in the language of Luke 4 now he's filled with the Spirit and he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness this is the experience brothers and sisters that you should desire yourself the Spirit filled life they who keep themselves built up in their most holy faith they experience a leading of the Spirit in their life and the ability to face the trials of the devil and to overcome it with the word of God. But we read after the temptation of the Lord Jesus in the wilderness in the 14th verse of Luke chapter 4 that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. There is a fame that goes all over and he comes to his own town, Nazareth, and he takes the scroll of Isaiah and he stands up in the church. And this is what he himself says. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I won't read the rest of it at this moment, but he is quoting Isaiah 61. And he's saying there is a fulfillment of something. And I am the prototype of the man who lives in new covenant blessings. I was just water baptized and now the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And the Bible doesn't tell us that Jesus went out into his public ministry and because he is God taken on flesh, he healed the sick, he cast out demons, he rebuked the storms because that's what God can do. And when he looked to his disciples and said, where is your faith to do these same things? They could have said back to him, well, you're God and we're not. That's the theology of some people. They say, you want proofs of Jesus' divinity? Look how he healed the sick. Look how he cast out demons. Look how he stilled the storms of the sea. And they're missing the fact that that's not precise, actually. Those are demonstrations of the operation of the Spirit of God in the life of a believer. He was... Tempted in all points like as we are. He trusted the Father like any believer is called to do. He says, where is your faith? Because he himself is doing it by faith. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so what I'm saying is the Bible tells us that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with what? With the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good. Yes, he was kind and considerate and overcame his trials and kept his tongue. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit and he healed and he cast out demons because God was with him. In John chapter 7, Jesus makes the point very obvious. He says that the Holy Spirit, this promise of the Father, it is not yet given. 
It says there in John 7, in verse 39, that Jesus spoke a certain thing about the Spirit, these life-giving waters. But the Bible tells us that they which believe should receive in the future. They should. Those that are believers, they should receive this Holy Spirit. That's in your Bible. Everything I'm reading to you is the revelation and the story of the Bible about the promise of the Father. It says the Holy Spirit was not yet given. Does that mean that the monad had only become a dyad and it wasn't yet a triad? Of course not. God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But this experience of the Holy Spirit in a special way, in a similar fashion as it was the case, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, not because the monad just became a dyad for the first time, so to speak. No, it's the one triune God revealing Himself progressively in the story of redemption. And so God sends forth His Son, Son and puts a punctuation point on the reality that the one true God is not an absolute monad. He is a trinity. He is a triunity. And here we are told that with respect to the Holy Spirit, with respect to the divine epiphany of the Holy Spirit, it had not yet come. But then we read this language from Jesus in many portions. Here's a sampling of them. Speaking about the future and the giving of the promise of the Father. In John chapter 14, beginning in verse 16, Jesus says, I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another comforter. All these wills, all these shells, all these whens, I won't keep emphasizing. They're all pointing to something in the future. He shall give you another comforter. That He, that is to say this comforter is personal. It is a person that He may abide with you forever. He tells us who He is, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive Receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him. And listen to this language. For he dwells with you, but he shall be in you. He is with you, but he's not yet in you. But there's coming a time, believer, like John said, John said, someone is coming after me who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, yes, I am the one and I will send this Holy Spirit. He's with you, but he will be in you. In John 14 and verse 26, he says, but the comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, the Father is interested in you having the Holy Spirit and all that that means. The Son, as a central part of His testimony to His disciples just prior to His death, is pointing them to the promise of the Father and the giving of the Holy Spirit. The Father will send Him in My name. He will teach you of all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. In John 15, in verse 26 and 27, Jesus says, But when 
It's still future. When the Comforter is come, whom I will send, I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. He's not going to take away from Christ. That's a, that's a false idea. The Holy Spirit doesn't detract from the Lord Jesus. He takes of the things of Christ and he reveals them unto us. He bears witness of the Lord Jesus. And John chapter 16, beginning with verse 5, Jesus says, Now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you ask me, why are you going, or whither do you go? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow has filled your heart. You think if I leave, God's no longer with you in this special way any longer. He says, but that's not true. The Holy Spirit is important and real, and I'm going to point you to him. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for me that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come. That language clearly means that he's not there yet. That promise of the Father had not happened yet. But he says, if I depart, I will. It's still in the future. I will send them to you. And when it's in the future, he has come. He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. I'll tell you, that'll assist your witness if you've got a little Holy Spirit in you to do those things. And then he explains what he means. And then down in verse 13, he says, How be it, when the Spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, he shall speak, and will show you things to come. He will glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. Jesus said, the same Jesus that's giving all of these promises in the upper room just prior to his death and suffering in his ministry, he said, if you know how to give good things to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? And we know that that giving of the Holy Spirit could not have been manifested right then because Jesus had not yet been glorified. But the language of Luke eleven thirteen is saying to all of us that in Jesus' mind, the giving of the Holy Spirit is a good thing that his children should desire. The Father wants to give a good thing, as it were. It is the giving of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus himself points out the majesty and the divinity of the Spirit in Luke 12, as I've referred to, and in verse 10, by stating that if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, no forgiveness for you. These are some of the features of Jesus' ministry prior to His death that point to the promise of the Father that is coming. Now I bring you to His resurrection but prior to his ascension. And in Acts chapter 1, we're going to learn a lot of things that I'm not going to dig into at the moment, but if you were to read that chapter in its entirety, you'll see that Jesus spent some time with his disciples after he was resurrected. He spent 40 days with them, speaking to them of things of the kingdom of God. At one point, he spoke to 500 people at once about matters concerning the kingdom of God. But I want to pick up 
the story in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. And we read there, And Jesus was assembled together with them. And listen to this church. He commanded them. He commanded them that they should not leave Jerusalem. They should not start witnessing for Him. They should not commence the project of building the church and carrying out church life. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere. Don't do anything. Wait for the promise of the Father. I've just given you all those texts that speak to what that promise is. Wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. And he tells them in verse 8 that they will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon them. They will be empowered to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we had time in this study to pause here and ask the question, what would have become of these disciples had they not waited and just said, look, we understand the message of Jesus Christ. Let's just go out and be faithful and get people saved. Then the entire story of the Christian life or Christian history would have been very, very different. Now we come not to that which is in the future. Even in Acts chapter 1, he tells them, wait for the promise of the Father. You're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, you believers. Wait for the promise of the Father. Is that not what he said? Is that not what Jesus, in the 40 days in which he was resurrected, was saying? Then has it ever occurred to you that there's something funny about the fact that though we are told specifically, he spake to at least 500 at once when we get to Acts chapter 2 and we are no longer in the future, looking to the future of when the promise of the Father is going to come, but we're looking, as we will in a moment, at the present, when that promise is fulfilled, when it's there, when it has come, why are there only 120 or so in the upper room? You say, well, they probably had other things to do. Well, maybe, maybe that's some of our problems. You've got other things to do. What could be more important than being in the center of God's will? He commanded them, don't leave Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father. In Acts chapter 2, we read, and the day of Pentecost was fully come. They were all of one accord in one place, that is 120 or so. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That's everything from Numbers chapter 11 through Joel chapter 2 through Ezekiel 36 all the way down through John the Baptist's statements through Jesus' ministry and all of his promises in the upper room. Now the promise of the Father is here and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. That is the fulfillment of the promise of the Father. That is the faith that was once for all delivered over to the saints because on that self-same occasion Peter stands up and he preaches and he says this is 
is the promise that was given by the prophet Joel. You can read it for yourself in Acts chapter 2 and verse 14 through 18. And then Peter goes on to say to the assembled thousands that were there, that were pricked in their heart, and said, what? shall we do? He said, repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, be baptized in Jesus' name. And he says, and you also will receive this gift of the Holy Spirit, for this promise of the Father is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off. No expiration date, no ceasing of it, to as many as the Lord our God shall call. I agree with this Holy Spirit ministry who says the baptism and infilling of the Holy Spirit are essential to New Testament Christianity. This is shown by the relatively inactive condition of the church from the day of ascension until the day of Pentecost. They had the same commission on the day of ascension that they had on the day of Pentecost. However, the church was not prepared to fulfill the great commission without first having the equipment of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The church was not fully prepared for existence as the church because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of worship and the spirit of witness. We must conclude then that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is not an optional or decorative experience in the life of the church of the believer. It is significant that the New Testament attitude toward the baptism in the Holy Spirit is that this experience is the normal expectation of one who is in Christ. The idea of remaining a Christian without the baptism in the Holy Spirit was considered an abnormality in practice. The experience should never have been a basis of denominational distinction. Pentecost is Christian and Christianity is Pentecostal. Pentecostalism should never have become a distinctive denominational designation. And to this, the New Testament agrees. When Peter went up in Acts chapter 10 to Cornelius' house, the Bible tells us that as he was preaching the word of God, the Spirit of the Lord fell on them. And they began to speak in other languages, just like they did in the upper room. That's Acts chapter 10, verse 44 through 43, uh, 48. When Peter then relays this back in Jerusalem. He says the Holy Spirit fell on them just like he did on us because this is the normative experience of the believers. And that's found in Acts chapter 11 and verse 15 through verse 17. And then when Paul himself went up to Ephesus, he found some believers in the Gentile city of Ephesus and he knew they were believers, but he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Since you believed, it's a participle in the Greek, having believed that you are in the status of a believer. But I'm asking you, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they said, no, we don't know about this experience. In the King James, it says, we don't know if there be any Holy Spirit. That's not, they never heard of the idea of a Holy Spirit. They're saying, we don't know about this new experience of the Holy Spirit that you have in mind. And he began to preach to them. And then when he laid hands on them, the Spirit of the Lord came upon them. And they 
they began to speak in tongues. In Acts chapter 8, verse 14 through 25, I won't relay that at length, but there Simon Magus saw something when Peter and John prayed for the believers in Samaria. He saw something and he wanted the power to communicate the Holy Spirit. And it stands to reason, given what we see in Acts chapter 10, in Acts chapter 19, and obviously Acts chapter 2, that he saw them praying in the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that the promise of the Father is the earnest and the seal of the new covenant. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14, we're told in him, that is in Christ, in whom you also trusted. After that, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. We just relayed this as it speaks to the Ephesians. This is an epistle to the Ephesians. Paul is writing to the Ephesians and he's reminding them of that event in, in Acts chapter 19. He says, after you believe the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after you believed, then you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance onto the redemption of the purchased possession, onto the praise of His glory. Do you not understand that this baptism of the Holy Spirit is a special stamp of God's mark of the new covenant experience in your life? And it's the earnest in the sense that it is the central gift of the entire new covenant, innumerable blessings that come through Jesus Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, I'm trying to say to you that quite apart from the Holy Spirit and the gift of the Holy Spirit and the promise of the Father being something that would just last for the first three centuries and maybe it was freshly experienced at the turn of the century, you know, however the stories go, you know, I'm talking about in the 1906, 1907, but I'm saying quite apart from it being something you can take or leave, it's the very earnest of your inheritance. The Bible tells us that we have been sealed. All the promises of God are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ unto the glory of God by us. And he which established us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, who also sealed us and has given us the earnest of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. But we can grieve the Spirit of God. The Bible says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed. I don't have the time, as you probably can tell, to expand upon some of these statements. I nonetheless am pleased to get some of these passages out into your ears, into your awareness, and they that wish can meditate upon these things on their own time schedule. But I want to finish up by answering a question that some may have, which might be, is it not possible for the Holy Spirit in this gift to be abused? Is it not possible to grieve the Holy Spirit by speaking in tongues too much, too often, too loudly, in the wrong place, at the wrong time? The short answer is yes. And I will speak to that at some level. Yes, it is possible to grieve the Holy Spirit by speaking in tongues in situations where it is not edifying to the church and not edifying to the believer. 
But I want to also emphasize, as this burden of this teaching is emphasized, it's also grieving the Holy Spirit when you just flat out neglect Him. When you just flat out don't pray in tongues virtually at all. Or you would never be heard praying in tongues. That is also grieving the Holy Spirit. And so I want to tell you in quick fashion something of the story of the Corinthian church. Because yes, they were grieving the Holy Spirit by, as it were, abusing this blessing to the neglect of the edification of the church. But I want you to understand how Paul brought correction to the Corinthians. This is what we're going to do in closing, dear brothers and sisters. So summon the strength, I plead with you, to follow this out. It by no means is a full treatment. Virtually every point in this message deserves its own attention and subsequent studies in some contexts could do that so that you could slow down and take it piece by piece. But the intention of this message is to just give you a panoramic view of this topic with the passages that are associated with it so that you can pick them up on your own time as you please. But this is how Paul dealt with irregularities in the spiritual dimension. In other words, if someone were to ask, whether it's a John MacArthur or anybody else were to ask, is it possible to be out of harmony with the intent of the liberty of the spirit realm? Is it possible to be in the flesh in the things of the spirit? Is it possible to abuse these gifts? Is it possible to be truly fanatical? And the answer is yes. But I want you to hear very carefully the way that Paul brought correction to a church that had that very problem. In other words, somebody might say, well, we shouldn't be speaking in tongues out loud at church. That that's not right. Let's listen to what Paul had to say about that very problem. That is exactly what was going on in Corinth. So first of all, I want you to see that the first thing Paul does is he expresses thankfulness that they are a spirit-filled church and that they have spirit-filled meetings. He says, I thank God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given to you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by Him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Jesus was confirmed in you, so that you come behind in no gift waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4 through 7. What do we learn there? Paul doesn't start his Corinthian epistle and say, Oh, I'm so grieved that you guys have got distracted with tongues and these gifts of the Spirit. And you've gotten away from just teaching sound doctrine and just living moral lives. And these things tend toward problematic activity in churches. And I wish you would take your attention away from these things. He first establishes, I am thankful that these gifts are operating in your church. And indeed, he even states, I anticipate them being in operation all the way to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is to say there is no ceasing of them. He encourages them, secondly, having been thankful for the gifts in general, he encourages them specifically to speak in tongues. Yes, he does. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 5, he says, read it for yourself, read it and read it again. I would that 
you all spoke with tongues. There's no way of canceling that out when you listen to the remainder of his statement and his burden when he says, but rather that you prophesied, for greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh in tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. In other words, dear believer, what I'm saying is what you should first do is read the first clause of that verse. Read it over and over again until it sinks into your soul. I would that you spoke in tongues. I want, the apostle says, every believer to have the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the initial evidence of speaking in tongues. He then qualifies, certainly, and says, but like anything else, remember Samson? We don't want to abuse the anointing or not bring the anointing to the subjection of God. You know, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, in other words. What I'm saying is, he's saying, but if you're in the church and all you do is speak in tongues as a form of supposedly edifying everybody else, that doesn't work. He'll go on to argue. But he does say, but if somebody's interpreting, now we're in a different story. So go ahead and speak in tongues if someone can interpret so that the church will be edified. And then Paul himself, he sets the example of a life living in the Spirit, not separating from the Spirit, not having not the Spirit. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 18 and 19? He says, I thank my God. I speak with tongues more than you all. There again, you should read the 18th verse over and over again. Take it seriously before you go anywhere else. I thank my God. I speak in tongues more than you all. Do you not think that Paul spoke in tongues in church meetings? If this is a man who speaks in tongues more than any of them, he was often in church meetings. He clearly, obviously spoke in tongues in church meetings. But he says in the 19th verse, if we're talking about edifying the church and my brothers and sisters understanding words that mean something to them, then I would rather speak five words with my understanding than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue when I'm in the church. And not just when I'm in the church in any sense, but when I'm in the church speaking with the purpose to edify the church. So then someone might ask, well then why speak in tongues at all? In the church or outside of the church? Why would you speak in tongues if Paul said, when I'm in the church, I'd rather speak five words with my understanding than 10,000 words in a tongue. Someone might read that and then forget that he said, I speak in tongues more than you all. You should give Paul credit for not being a loony bin. He's not schizophrenic. He's not making things up. These are not throwaway lines. He says, I thank God that you speak in tongues. I thank God that you come behind in no gift. I would that you all speak in tongues. I speak in tongues. But then he says, under certain conditions, I would rather speak only five words than 10,000 words in tongues. So someone who's not following this might say, well then, why speak in tongues at all? And he tells you in verses 2 and 4 of 1 Corinthians 14, he says, he that speaks in a tongue 
speaks not unto men, but unto God. When you speak in a tongue, you're speaking unto God. When the church assembles to pray, if you have a prayer meeting in this building or a prayer meeting in some other home, or if you're together as a husband and wife or a group of Christians fellowshipping, and you're going to pray, why would you pray in tongues? Well, when you're praying, who are you speaking to? Are you speaking to each other? You shouldn't be. If you're trying to speak to each other to impress one another, and that's why you only want to speak in English, which I hope would never be the case for a believer, well, you're already in sin. That's already contradictory to Jesus' uh, directives in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't pray to be heard of other men. So even if you're praying in English, you're praying to God. You're not praying when you're praying to edify the church with what you're saying. You're praying to God. Do you understand? Now, if God is hearing you, then obviously that'll redound to the edification of the church. But your purpose in praying is to pray to God. Do we pray to God or do we pray to one another? When we pray, do we say, Oh my brother, oh my sister, hear now my language when I pray. Or do we say, My Father, which art in heaven, here is my prayer. Hear my cry, O God. Attend unto my prayer. Amen? So the Bible says, this is why you would speak in tongues, because you're speaking unto God. And if you're praying in the church, you pray in tongues because you're speaking unto God. If you're gathering with a group for worship and fellowship and you're going to intercede for somebody, do we believe in silent requests? I mean, is that how you have your entire prayer life? You never say a thing. You never have a prayer of agreement. You say, well, doesn't it say you pray to God? Well, yeah, you pray to God, but why do we get together and pray if we're all going to just be dead silent? That's too close to dead as far as I'm concerned. No, I'm showing you the reason why you would speak in tongues is not to edify me. If I come for a prayer meeting and when you start praying in tongues in a prayer meeting, if you think you're telling me something, I'm going to tell you, you're not telling me anything, but that's okay. We're at a prayer meeting. Now, if we're done with a prayer meeting and we have a worship service and it's time for the gifts and, and you start coming out with tongues and two or three or four start having tongues and no interpretation, now that's a different story. The Bible will say, be silent. It doesn't say don't speak in tongues. I'll give you that here if I read all the verses, but it's there in Corinthians. It says be silent if there's no interpreter. It didn't say stop praying in tongues. It, say, it says speak to yourself and to God. Why? Because you edify yourself. That's in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 14. Why speak in tongues? Because you edify yourself. I mean, even if one were to argue for a prayer meeting only having silent tongues, okay, I mean, I'm not in agreement with that, nor is the Bible, but I'm trying to make a point. You should at least then be praying in tongues and silent if you can pull that off. I don't really like doing that. Do you ever try praying in tongues in your brain? I mean, if I was in solitary confinement and even then I could still pray out loud, if they told me I couldn't, I'd probably pull a Daniel on them and tell them, too bad, I'm going to pray in, I'm going to pray Anyway, you, you follow what I'm saying? Throw me in the lion dead. You know, whatever. I mean, I'll just go to heaven. What's the big deal? You know what I'm trying to say? So I'm saying, I'm not that good at praying in my mind in tongues. The Bible says, they spake as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance, not they thought as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance or thought patterns. What I'm saying is, if you're going to pray to edify yourself and pray unto God, then why wouldn't you be like Paul? You say, well, I pray in English. Well, so do I. I did before I started this message. 
But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15, what is it then? I'm a good believer, he's saying. What is it then? How about me? I'm going to pray in the Spirit, and I'm going to pray with the understanding. He says, I'll sing in the Spirit, and I'll sing in the understanding. I mean, can, it, can we leave it there? <laughs> in other words, is it, is it any more complicated than that? At the end of the day, it isn't any more complicated than that, brothers and sisters. This is the man who understands the promise of the Father. This is the man who understands the idea of, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? The answer is no. Oh, wow. Let's fix that and get the baptism, the promise of the Father. You say, well, I don't want tongues. Well, that's too bad because that's a part of the promise of the Father. Stop calling it tongues, maybe. If you need to be, you know, um, detox from tongue nervousness. Call it the promise of the Father. It's this glorious promise that is all throughout the Old Testament into Jesus' ministry, promising it over and over again and telling his church, don't you do a thing until you receive the promise of the Father. And sadly, we have Christianity disobeying that fundamental charge in all sorts of situations. Well, I could continue to give you the, the nature of Paul's correction to the Corinthians. I've given you a good taste of it in this study that is really a sweeping overview. But I'll give you one final directive from the Apostle Paul. At the end of the day, we can go around and round. I mean, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't pay attention to the actual language that he says. I'm not suggesting that at all. But for anybody that has heard it and is still undecided, he says at the end of his treatment of this issue, he says, brethren, desire to prophesy. Did you hear that? After everything he said, you know, he regulated them because they were out of order. He says, if you're going to prophesy or speak in tongues, he said, let it be two or three tongue speakers and let somebody else interpret. And if there's no interpreter, then speak to yourself and to God, right? And then he says, if you're going to be prophesying, then let the prophets test the prophecies. That's what he said. Let the others judge, right? But at the end of the day, he said, he did not say, so you're getting my drift. Can we just knock this spiritual stuff off altogether? Like, I'm trying to wean you baby Corinthians from this spiritual stuff and this tongue nonsense. At the end, he didn't say, can we just knock this off altogether? No, he says, desire to prophesy. And then, listen to this, forbid not to speak in tongues. That is just as much a command as let everything be done decently and in order. You want everything to be done decent and in order? You're going to have to find a way to do it without forbidding to speak in tongues. Because you're going to have to put both commands together. And they are absolutely there. Jude 19 is worried about those that separate themselves from this apostolic message. Go with a soulish orientation to these issues, having not the Spirit. Separating yourself by moving away from the Spirit is a step toward apostasy. It's a form of denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, how's that? I've been explaining it in my view in this entire teaching. How can you deny the Spirit and not deny the Father and the Son? It's not possible, or you don't have a good understanding of the doctrine of God. Ceasing to pray in the Holy Spirit is to separate yourself from God. I'll say that again. Ceasing. To pray in tongues is the opposite of building yourself up in the whole, most holy faith. 
It's contrary to keeping yourself in the love of God. It's contrary to building that expectation of Jesus' return. As a matter of fact, it's even separating you from me, to tell you the truth. And by the way, I hope it's true, it's my heart that for you and for any who would ever hear this message, as the Lord may allow, this is ministered in compassion to God's people. This is an earnest contending for the faith that was once for all delivered over the saints. And as the title says, the promise of the Father is in the faith that was once for all delivered over to the saints. The promise of the Father, the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the initial evidence of speaking in another language, is a part of the faith. It's a very central part of the faith that was once for all given to the saints. And anywhere where those drift away and they move away having not the Spirit, there needs to be believers who earnestly contend for this faith and they build themselves up in it, doing the very thing others are walking away. Pray in tongues. Pray in the Holy Spirit. As I said, you're not just moving away from God, you're moving away from me and your brothers and sisters. Why? Because we all are in a spiritual warfare. I need your prayers and I need better than what you can pray in your own mind. I need your prayers in that prayer language of Romans 8, 26 and 27, where the Spirit Himself makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. I need you to pray for me better than how you can pray in your own elaborate English language, however eloquent you can get in earnest. I need you to pray in the Spirit for the believer. Because spiritual warfare sounds like this in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18 and 19. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And you can read the rest on your own. You're going to help the ministry effectively is what he says. Pray for me in the ministry that I may preach boldly. Maybe you'll preach a little more boldly if you'll pray for yourself in tongues. And if you don't think that's true then you've forgotten what happened in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 2, they were all baptized in the Holy Spirit and they spake in tongues. Is that not obvious? But in Acts chapter 4, they had experienced some persecution. Peter, John, come back to the church. They express what had happened among them. And we're told in verse 31, they all prayed. And then the place was shaken. And then the Holy Spirit came down and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. That's New Testament Christianity. That's building yourself up in this most holy faith, brothers and sisters. I say in closing that it is a move away from the faith that was once for all delivered to the churches when we neglect this precious promise of the Father. I choose to close with a quotation not of my own. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit was not a vague theological formula invented by St. Paul to impress first century mystics and philosophers. It was the Christian's way of referring to the immediate, awe-inspiring, supernatural realization of the presence of God as the living bond of their unity and inward strength in the new community of Christ. The Pentecost experience is decisive for the Christian church. Without question, Pentecost was essential for the nurturing of the church of Jesus Christ.
Father, as we stand before you, having received your word, Lord God, we remember the words of the Lord Jesus who said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me. And whatever the attendees in that synagogue in Nazareth thought of that, we might ponder. But we know that we don't have to sit as bystanders and watch one person or two or three be the only ones who receive this promise of the Father for the promises unto us and to our children and to as many as the Lord our God should call, even those that are far off. Father, we pray that you would make this promise a very personal promise from your fatherly heart to each believer in this place and to your children at large, Father, that they would hear, perhaps from our own lips, <clears throat> the kind of question Paul asks his fellow brother and sister in Christ, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Knowing how blessed and wonderful and necessary this is for the life of the believer. Father, I just pray for my brothers and sisters that the reality of this promise of the Father, this earnest of our inheritance, would be freshly impressed upon their spirits and that they would desire fresh and fillings, that they would desire not to grieve the Spirit of God, which is to grieve the one true God. Let us worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is my prayer in Jesus' name.